Okay, it's uh, great to welcome you this morning. And uh, my name's Daniel, one of the team here. I think this is going to come on just a moment, but I'm hoping you can hear me. Um, if you've got a Bible, can you turn with me to Ephesians and chapter 1? And we're going to be diving into these scriptures here. And um, before we actually get into this passage, um, I just want to say four things um, off the back of our Planted series. So if you're here for our four-week Planted series, we spoke about four realities that we as a church want to dive deep into. And I don't want to leave that as just a podcast sitting on a website somewhere. These are things that we want to enflesh and live out. So I just want to say four practical ways that we're going to work out each of these things. One inch, if you will, not uh, whatever the mass is. Sixteen. Four things. Firstly, we spoke about prayer, that we want to be a community planted in prayer. Um, we are now going to be establishing a, a pattern of prayer and fasting as a church, whereby on the first Wednesday of every month, we are going to set that aside, whatever we're doing, um, to fast. From food, um, from beginning of the day, through till 8.30 a.m. No, no, no. So th- through till 9.30 p.m., we're going to fast. And we're going to gather together in small groups or sometimes in town together. And at the end of the day, 8 o'clock, we're going to gather in our small groups or at the centre all together. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to bless this city that we love. And we're going to break bread together at the end of the day. And that's going to be established the first Wednesday of every month. So the first one, November the 7th, put it in your diary. I'm really excited about this. I know fasting isn't like top on the agenda for a lot of us. We think that's something I I want to avoid. But I do believe that we're a spiritually born people. And if we are going to walk continually in step step with the Spirit, it's going to be through prayer and fasting. So will you put that in your diary? And you can just stick it on repeat. Just every, the first Wednesday of every month, we're going to do more. But for starters, we want a foundation of corporate prayer as we seek God. Is that all right? So firstly, prayer. Secondly, the, the scriptures. We want to be planted in the scriptures. Um, over the next uh, few months, I'm going to be taking people who, um, through a study on how to study the Bible and then how to teach others. Um, so both of those things. So it's one thing to learn the Bible process, it's another to help and lead others into it. We want to equip every single person at Trinity Church London to be those who can pass on the scriptures to those around them, whether they're believers or unbelievers. So we're going to do that as starting on groups of 12 every month or two months or so. We're just going to gather together so that we can all be equipped and confident in knowing I can unpack the Bible with someone else and, and teach them. The third thing is that we want to be planted in scripture. And I'm super excited to announce that our community, community groups are going to be community group. Sorry. Scripture community. There you go, community. Um, And I'm super excited to say that our community groups are going to be starting in the next few weeks. So if I could ask now AJ to stand up and Rachel to stand up and John and Jackie and Mike to stand up. And uh, there's one other. Where's Darren and Cheryl? Darren at the back and Cheryl out the back with the kids. So these guys are our esteemed community group leaders. Can we give them a big round of applause? So stay standing for just a moment. Um, Darren and Cheryl are going to be leading a group in the Bromley area. Um, AJ and Nam are going to be leading a group in the Bromley area as well. Uh, Mike, John and Jackie are going to be leading a group in the Penge-Beckenham area. And myself, Toria, Rachel are going to be leading a group in the King's Cross area. So if you are not yet connected in with the group and you would like to be, then either speak to one of these guys, they would love to talk with you, or speak to myself and we'd love to get you connected into the life of the church. Um, church really becomes family when you get to know 
people with it. We're not just a service, amen? amen. So thank you guys. Um, we're lo- really looking forward to that. And the last thing is this, to be planted in generosity. And Jenny led us in it last week to let us know that we, on the 4th and the 11th of November, we are going to be taking up our first, as Trinity Church London, our first offering for the global work of regions beyond some 176 churches around the world in some of the richest cities and the poorest towns and villages of the nations and we are looking to raise 320,000 pounds as a movement yes steve is whooping um the amazing thing is that a day after announcing this we already had 130 odd thousand of this given so we are well on our way. Um, then we're going to show a video next week um, where we're going to get to see Steve's lovely face and he's going to be explaining more about the, the, uh, the global offering. But um, I'd ask the team just to come back to me and just to be praying, kind of, what, what is it that you feel like we can do to serve and participate in this global offering? Because we want to be here for London and the nations. Remember, for God, London and the nations. And I want to put it to us as a church and for you to pray about whether we together as a community can give £15,000 to this work. Okay? Amen. Easy. There you go, Jackie. All right. If anyone wants to raise me on this, I'm really happy to be raised. If anyone wants to put their first 15K down, that's fine. But can we pray? And can I ask you just to go away and be seeking God? What can you contribute to? It would be amazing to smash that, wouldn't it? Yeah. And just to be able to contribute so much to the global work of God and all that he's doing in serving communities around the world. So £15,000, if we can smash that, amazing. But let's be keeping that figure in mind, praying God and asking him to move in our hearts. What can we do to contribute to this? Okay? Brilliant. Have you got to Ephesians 1 yet? Great. Well, we're not actually going to read it yet, but I just want to introduce something. We will get there. Um, for, For hundreds and thousands of years, people have known that the healing power of water and the oceans and people have gone to swim in the sea and been in the oceans knowing that there is healing power in it. Over the last few years there's been this increasing body of scientific research done now that has been proving that there is healing power in the oceans. And there's this Californian scientist, they always seem to be Californian for some reason, but there's a Californian scientist who's leading this research on this blue mind ethos. He talks about and there's this movement growing where they are taking people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and mental health issues and taking them to learn to surf, taking them into the ocean for periods of time for their mental and spiritual and emotional well-being. It's incredible. All this research being done have been done. And on the BBC there is this article off the back of this with this, this woman called Jessica Cox who lives down on the coast and telling her story. And the article was this, the sea saved me. And it tells a story of her struggling and battling with all these mental health issues, depression and anxiety. And then she writes this about her discovering the healing power of the ocean. It says, you can feel tired of life and all the things that are going on. And you get into the water and it literally washes anxiety away. And you feel the release. When you're out there, you're part of something that is a lot bigger than you. And so it humbles you. And you feel afterwards the feelings of vibrancy and life. And I read that and I thought, wow. Because I was discovering all the truths that are in this passage that we're about to go into. And it felt like to me in this moment that we are going into the deep 
depths of the ocean here yeah. and you will discover that just as Jessica Cox found herself baptised into the depths of the ocean and she found two things, a humbling and vibrancy in life. So as we go into these passages now, we are going to find exactly the same thing. Just as she found herself baptised into the ocean, she found something far bigger than herself. As we read these verses, we are going to be baptised into God and find a being who is far bigger than us. And we are going to be humbled. And we are going to find ourselves at the end of this passage fizzing with vibrancy and life. Because of the God that we are about to encounter. So I want to pray before I read these verses that we would be baptised into God. Just as Jessica Cox was baptised into the ocean and found herself healed in this way. And I want to say to you, if you're not a believer here this morning and if you are just on the outside of church and you're looking in and you're wondering these crazy passionate people who want God to do things in this city, you are so welcome And I would just ask for you just to come with an open heart for a moment and just dip your toe in the water and see how far you can come with us because you might find exactly the same thing, a humbling and a vibrancy of life because of this and healing in the process. So Father, I want to say thank you for these words I'm about to read. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us into this. And I pray for every single one of us, Lord, where we would say we have faith today or no faith. Lord, that you would bless us with our baptism in you, that we might leave humbled, not thinking of ourselves, and filled with vibrancy and life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you ready to take a deep breath with me? And we're going to dive into these verses, and we're going to find ourselves out of our depth. And you've got to remember, or know for the first time maybe, that these verses, when you read this, this is an explosion of prayer and praise for Paul. And in the original language, there were no full stops in this sentence. This was all one long sentence for Paul. And this is not normal. This was an explosion of joy and praise and worship as Paul himself found himself overwhelmed with the infinite realities of God. And he forgets all of his grammar. So if you're dyslexic, don't worry. It's okay sometimes. You can just go with it. He forgot all of the grammar and he just writes this huge sentence. In the English, we've got to put full stops in there just to breathe and make sense of it. But for Paul, he just lets loose here. And you get the sense of it when you read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious Grace, hallelujah, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him, 
We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Hallelujah. And in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hallelujah. And I'm daring to teach this in 30 minutes. So I want to give you three blessings that we find that will leave our hearts worshipping and then three reasons why we can be confident in these blessings, no matter how you feel coming to church today. Because some of you are feeling morally confident You think, I nailed last week. I did it. I prayed. I helped the old lady across the road. I am doing well. Some of you come to church today and you are feeling morally very insecure because your soul is rattling with all the things you know that you haven't done, you wish you had done, or if someone found that out, then they would really not like me and you are coming insecure. But there is a way in which we can all leave this place utterly secure, not in and of ourselves, but because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Amen. So three blessings. Do you want to know some blessings for your Sunday? Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Here's three blessings. Verse four. Even, he's already said, blessed be God. And verse four, even as he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Blessing number one, that if you are in Christ now, you will find yourselves holy and blameless. Isn't that wonderful? That we can stand in front of the mirror and find ourselves holy and blameless. And not only that, but find ourselves before God, the infinitely holy, pure God, and find ourselves holy and blameless. It's just part of humanity that we all struggle with a certain sense of guilt and shame. Can anyone be honest in the room with me today and say, there are moments where we struggle with guilt and shame. If, if, if people knew right now who I was in private or all the kind of things that I thought or what I let slip from my mouth, that I, I would be so embarrassed right now. If you know Charlie Sheen, the American movie star and TV actor, uh, he's had a slightly crazy, wild, drunken life and I'm not sure if he's still there or not, but I, 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 we pray not. But he talks about having shame shivers. When he looks back and recalls moments of his life and things that he's done, and he has these shame shivers. And he's like, oh, why did I do that? You ever have those moments and you're like, why did I do that? And all all you want to do is just shrivel up and disappear and shrink and go away. You know, there's those things, oh my Lord, why? And all of us in our honest moments have those. And there are things that we do not want other people to know about. And if we're we're honest, a lot of our life is spent trying to cover up the sense of shame and guilt that we have. Because there is a sense in us that we have not lived up to the mark. And I'm not even talking about a religious mark. It could be a standard that your parents set for you. And you you know you grew up with this sense of an expectation that you could never fulfill. Or your boss. Or sometimes just yourself. You have your own standards. And you know that you haven't lived up to the kind of person that you wish you would be. There is a version of myself that I want to be. And I am not living up to it. 
And if that is true, forget religion, forget God for a moment. If it's true that we wouldn't even live up to our own standards, how much more if we were to stand? If, if you're not a believer here today, just imagine if there were a God who was infinite in holiness, who created us, who was utterly morally pure. If we were to stand before that God, how much guilt and shame you might feel. So we spend our lives trying to cover ourselves up with whatever it might be. A work, a career, something that will bolster us, something that will put a fig leaf around us so that we don't have to deal with this kind of sense of insecurity that's in here. Some of us go to religion. We think if we go to church and if I pray and if I do this, if I get an absolution from the priest, then maybe this sense of shame and guilt will get washed away. But the reality is, if we do that for long enough, that we'll know that nothing that we do can scrub away that inner sense of guilt and shame. Those shame shivers will not go away. Remember Lady Macbeth, whatever she did, she, they weren't even there yet. She was scrubbing, trying to get the blood of Duncan off her hands out that spot because she could nothing would do it. Because it is not down to us. It is down to a blessing that we receive from God in Jesus Christ. And here is the amazing reality that we can walk away with here knowing that we can stand before the mirror and just bear with me for a moment, emotionally, spiritually, physically naked, not many of us like doing this, and not have any guilt and shame. And more than that, we can stand before an infinitely pure and holy God who would consume us right now if we stood here by ourselves. But we can stand before God naked, physically, morally, emotionally, spiritually naked and feel no shame. Can you imagine that? Lovely. Not, not, not even a wince of like, oh my goodness, God's looking at me right now. <laughs> So much so that you would see the loving gaze of God who looks on you as holy and blameless. And that look would not just mean, oh, I better be confident before I'm holy and blameless. But it would make you dance in his presence because of the freedom. Very good. I am utterly holy and blameless. The holy, infinite God who can see everything, thought, word and deed. He can look through all of me. And I am going to dance in his presence because of this liberty. Because I'm holy and blameless because of Jesus Christ. Isn't this wonderful? Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And my question to you this morning is, do you believe that? Because that will change the way you worship, the trains, the way you go to work, change the way you act with your boss. It will change everything. So firstly, you are holy and blameless. Would you like another blessing? Yeah, I've got two more. So here we go. Here's another blessing. Verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And by the way, like, you can get Pentecostal on me this morning, okay? Because I'm feeling happy. And if you want to give me any back and forth, you, you feel free to get Pentecostal this morning. Okay, thanks, Steve. We all know what it's like to live and feel like we're on the outside of some inner circle. Anyone been there in that place? There's like a social circle or a circle at work or there's a circle sometimes in church. There is, you can't even put your finger on it, but there is some kind of inner thing that's happening and you feel like you're on the outside of it. Ever, ever felt like that? 
And you know, like, the worst is school, isn't it? Everyone's had it at school. Like, there's this moment, there's, like, there's the cool kids, they're over there, and there's a feeling like, maybe this is just my counselling right now, I don't know, and I'm not, and I'm looking at them and thinking, oh, what would it be like to be part of the inner circle of the cool crowd? And there is this, we walk through life doing it, I think, and all of us in this room, even in our most confident moments, I think there might be, we can't put our finger on it, but there's a sense of, like, there's still this inner group somewhere. So where is it? What is it? I, I don't know. It's just this feeling. Because I think in our hearts there is this echo that we have. Where we were once bound up in the inner life at the very centre of the universe. In God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we walked with God as part of that inner circle. And we were in the centre. And we did know everything. And we were part of the inner group. And because we have walked away... And we have tried to do things our own way. I think there is this continual echo of this sense. Even when we are organisationally on the very inside of it, there is always this echoing sense that we're not quite part of the inner thing. And we can't quite put our finger on it because it's not an organisational thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's because we all have this echoing reality, this thing in our hearts that say we were once part of the inner core of the universe, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, but we've lost it. And we now find ourselves far away from God, trying to do life by ourselves. And here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. That the father, who lives as it were in the warmth of the family home, doesn't leave us walking the streets as orphans in the cold and in the dark, trying to make life on our own. But the father and the son get together and they decide to rescue you and I. And the father sends the son out into the cold, hard streets where you are living as an orphan, trying to find the inner circle of the universe. And Jesus looks at all the mess that you've made with your life, the spiritual debt that you have accrued. And he says, I am going to die on the streets as an orphan for you. And I'm going to take all of that on myself. And Jesus dies with all of the debt that you've accrued on the streets, with all the mess that you've made of your life, and he dies with it on the streets. And the Father then raises him up from the dead. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of the Father of the universe, Jesus then says, will you now follow me back into the family home? And you and Jesus get to walk back and knock on the door of the family home of the universe. And with a welcoming embrace, the father looks at you with an eternal, infinite, smiling beam, a fatherly face. And he whips you up into his arms and he draws you into the warmth of the family home so that you might be with him forever and ever and ever, always on the inside of the universe. Hallelujah. I, I can't help but tell this story because um, we've lived there and it's, just a, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. So indulge me for a minute. Our eldest boy, Micah, is adopted. And uh, we tried to have kids for four, five, six, eight years in the end, I think it was. And we'd always talked about adopting as, as, um, when we were going out. Um, but we'd always assumed it would be slightly later, you know, down the line. We thought, like, we'll have some kids and then I think that's what most people do. We'll have kids and then we'll adopt. Uh, but we struggled to have kids for all sorts of reasons in our hospital for years and years. And we got to the point where we basically got given a couple of rounds of IVF. So we looked at it we, and we, we take the approach most things in life. We're going to walk as far as we can and just keep checking and just keep pushing doors and see what happens. And we got to this point, think, ah, and then adoption. And we just had this choice and we're sitting in the, in the, the waiting room basically to say, like, now's the time to go for it. And we both just knew in our hearts 
that now is the time not to go for IVF but to adopt. It's always been on our hearts, so we went for it. And we signed up to all these agencies and these open evenings. We went to the open evening at Greenwich Council. We're a bit blasé, I've got to be honest. We arrived late, we sat at the back, but God just arrested our heart. Everything just seemed right. So there and then, we signed up. We said, well, whatever you need to do. And we were told, this process is going to be arduous. It's going to be hard work. At that point, we didn't know. We just signed up. We said, interview us. Go ahead. And so for the next like seven, eight months, we were interviewed, like held down. Well, no, we weren't actually, but you know, we, it, it felt like that at points. So and we'd finish these three hour interviews and we're like just dizzy with tiredness as we got grilled and grilled and grilled. Um, and at the end of this process, we went before a panel and they said, look, after all of this, we, we approve you as adopters. And then we had this weird waiting time of a, like a phone call to say we found someone. And sure enough, Marion, our amazing social worker, she sat us down um, in our living room and showed us this picture of this tiny little boy. Um, and I mean, for me, it was instant, but that's just how I tend to work. Tori and then looked at the photo and she was, and very quickly we both saw this and, and we knew in our hearts, this was our boy. And we saw this picture and we had loads of questions. And not because we wanted to know, like, before we get into this, before we sign up on the dotted line, like, we need to know who we, but we just wanted to know. We knew in our hearts, we just wanted to find out more. So we had this meeting with Marion, it's amazing, and she gave us a whole stack of photos. And his carers um, had, had uh, put him in, like, this weird elf outfit for some reason. He's, like, gone for this photo shoot in an elf outfit. So all we had of him, and we stuck them all around the flat, all we had of him was in these pictures in this, like, crazy, got to be honest, not very attractive elf suit. But we still loved him. He had this like weird smile. I think he was saying, get me out of this suit. I don't know. But we, we stuck the pictures all around the wall. We're just praying for him and waiting for the moment. And if, if you've been involved in social service or whatever, these meetings are like, forget Brexit planning. A planning to meet your future adoptee son or daughter is like crazy. So anyway, it was February 14th, 2 p.m. Bexley Heath. We're going to the carer's home to meet our little boy, now Micah. And uh, we were, we'll never forget, it, we arrived there early till we could be like Britishly polite, kind of, you know. But at, two, at exactly two o'clock, we banged on the door. And I, I realised at that point that I was quite disappointed because in my mind, I think, unbeknown to me, I had expected like a red carpet. I had expected trumpeters. I had expected like a receiving party of some sort. I had expected some fanfare. You know, we are about to meet our boy who's going to come into our forever family. He's going to be adopted. And all that happened was the carer opened the door with this tiny little boy in her hand. He said, hi, here he is. And I was here. Like, oh, it's just a young little boy. We weren't actually allowed to meet him in that moment, we were told, because... Our first meeting was to be a no-touch no meeting. But thankfully, the social worker left. And the in there. But anyway, it's done now. So and when he left, the carer said, do you want to hold him? We were like, yes, we really do. So we held him. And then five days later, we got to drive home with this little boy. And then six months later, all the paperwork was done. And we got to go to Bram- Bromley Family Court. And we went before this judge. And she said a few words. It was a very short hearing. And she did the legal work. I don't know. She didn't do a stamp. I was waiting for like, you know, a, a smash of a hammer or something. It never happened. In my mind, it was there. And she legally declared him to be our boy. And then the most amazing thing happened. Two weeks later, we got this brand new birth certificate through. 
that said Micah James MacLeod. And his history was rewritten. And his birth history was rewritten. And his legal status was rewritten. So that if any legal entity would ever look at Micah James MacLeod with this new name, new identity, new family, new future, there would be no quibbles about inheritance or whatever or status because he is a MacLeod. And that is irrevocable. There's no 14-day cooling down period. Once it's done, it's done. And he may think, oh, I want some new parents one day. But sorry, Micah, it's done. We are your forever mum and dad. And that is what we get in the father. We get a forever family that cannot be reversed. Amen. Yeah, you can clap. Let's get Pentecostal today. And here's the good news. Verse 14, in him we have obtained an inheritance because of this. And I love this. I mean, poor lad Micah, at that stage, he was basically inheriting all of our debts. He wasn't, he wasn't getting a good deal. That's, that's, that's slowly changing over time. And we want to do him good by the end of our life anyway. But at the time, he was like, I'm really sorry. But um, <laughs> he will receive an inheritance that is equal to who is our own, Kiki. So we know Quibble's in the court on that day when it finally comes. Who's the estate going to? It's Micah and Kiki. This is all yours now. And in God, when you get adopted into his family, we receive an inheritance. All the riches of heaven in the glory of God. We get to inherit because we are in Christ. We are a son of the living God. And just as Jesus inherits the nation, he inherits the universe, we're told. We get to inherit Everything, And I can't tell you to a personal note how this has ministered to me over the last week because we, Tor and I, are hopefully prayerfully about to move into what will be our first ever actual like home. You know, like, if you imagine a home when you're a four-year-old kid, you imagine it to have a, a ground floor on the first floor, like one of those kind of homes with a garden with a bit of grass in it. It's absolutely, we're so excited. But I, I, I've been so ministered to this verse. In him, because of this adoption, we've obtained an inheritance. Because when you're five, you kind of picture your life when you get to 30, 40, like you get a house and a car and a spouse and kids. That's kind of the picture that you tend to have, isn't it? Like, and in the world sense, like you've made it. Like, ah, oh, you've got the picture of what adult life looks like. And I've just been so aware, this is not it. This house that we're about to move into, this is not my inheritance. This is not the, this is not the promised land. I've got an inheritance way beyond this in glory. So much so, we could walk away from this very, very happily, knowing that in a few years' time, we are going to be infinitely and eternally rich in God. This is my inheritance. So I can walk away from anything in this life, because I'm adopted into the family of God, and I have an inheritance coming that will not be revoked on me. Amen? That's the second blessing. Third blessing is this, that you are redeemed and forgiven. So he says this in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption and forgiveness. And they come together. I have to talk fast. I'm talking fast already. Oh my goodness. Um, In the ancient days, if you worked for a master, very often you were a slave. And you couldn't just say, hey, I found a better job down the road. It pays better. You are a slave. You are owned by your master. So if you want it out of your job, you need to either save money or someone had to buy you out of slavery. 
And so they would wait and the moment would come where someone may buy them or they might save up over years and years and late in life they might say, here's my ransom money, I want to be redeemed from slavery so that I might become a free man. And in the scriptures we're told that spiritually speaking, we are enslaved to the things of this world. And I know today's culture says, hey, no, we're free because we throw off the shackles of God and therefore we find ourselves free. But I would ask you if you think, just look around the society around you and even in your heart and in your own life, how free do we seem to be when you read the newspapers? How free do we actually live as a society now we've thrown off the so-called shackles of God all that's happened I would suggest is that we've thrown off one master for a hundred other graceless masters who do not lift a finger to help us or dignify us they will only eventually crush us under the weight of expectation only in God do we find a true gracious master who we find true liberty in and yet we are trying to find salvation in these earthly lords And what we're told in these scriptures is that Jesus Christ, not through money, but through his own life and his death on a cross, through his blood we're told, redeemed you and I from slavery to the stuff of this world so that we can walk through this world engaged in everything and mastered by nothing. Wouldn't that be amazing for us as Trinity Church London? We engage in everything. The highest levels of politics and business and family life Everything we are engaged with, but we are mastered by nothing. Why? Because we have a greater master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now our ransom and our Lord. And in that, we have our forgiveness. Amen? Because forgiveness isn't saying, hey, by the way, I'm just going to forget that stuff you've done in the past. Forgiveness is a complete radical turnaround of your life and a status change so that nothing that you do past or present or in the future is ever counted against you. And in this, you find your redemption because of the death of Christ. You are now free. It's not like sometimes I'm free today, but tomorrow I've done some sins and now I'm shackled again. No, 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 no. The Father frees you spiritually and you live as a free person. And what we need to do is reckon our mind to this liberty that we have because we've been ransomed from the sin and this world. Amen? Amen. So three things. It's good news. And three reasons why you need to be confident in this. And this, this passage here is deeply Trinitarian. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It marks us out from Islam, marks us out from being JWs, it marks us out from many faiths. We have a God who is one, who is also three beings, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And you see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit actively at work plotting your good in this passage right now. And together since before eternity Um, or before the world began, eternity can't begin. I learned that at school, I remember now, yes. Before the world began, God was planning your good. Not just like your good, your good, Rachel. Your good, Jackie. Your good, Georgina. Your good, Mike. Your good, Jane. He was planning our good that we might find ourselves blessed. And these are the three reasons why we can have confidence. Firstly, the Father had planned this from before time even began. Verse 4, even as he, part of the trick of this passage, by the way, is trying to work out who the he is. 
and who the pronoun's referring to. So you've got the Father involved, the Son involved, the Holy Spirit involved. So you have to do some careful exegesis. So who's doing what bit here? But once you've got it, we can see it, that he here is the Father in this moment, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So you've got to get this. Not even before you were born, or before... That, you know, in the Roman times, or it wasn't just some time in history. This is, if you went back left in your Bible and you get to Genesis 1, and then you get that nice blank page with nothing on it, before that blank page, and before the Old Testament, and before you keep going back, shut the Bible, and then before that, before there was literally nothing that was created, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had predestined you, had chosen you, that you would receive all of these blessings. Which means this, these blessings do not rely on you being a good person. They don't rely on you at all. Because God had chosen this before you had done a good thing or you'd done a bad thing. Which means you can leave this place utterly confident with your head held high, knowing that all of this is because of God and because he willed it. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful. Psalm 115, 3 says that the Lord is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You know, there are no restrictions on God. He is not, we, we have lot, we say, I'm free, I'm my own man, I do what I want. We have like 100 million conscious and subconscious limitations on us, physically, emotionally, relationally. We cannot do everything. And yet God lives in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So if he wills, that you would receive these blessings. There are no restrictions. There are no committees he's got to go through. It's done. And it has been decided. And if it's been decided in eternity past, it will be sustained now and it will be glorified in eternity future. This will not change. Hallelujah. Sometimes people, they use this thing. Okay, well, all right, Daniel, you've said some stuff there that I've got some major problems with. Because if God chose us, what about me choosing? And all the verses about choosing to follow Jesus. There are moments where we need to debate and think through theologically and philosophically this predestination that God chose. There are moments for that. And there are moments for us to submit to this and bow down and worship because this is good news. And I want to suggest to you that the first thing that you need to do is not theologically try and pull this together there are paradoxes here that we will never put together. The first thing we do is simply submit and receive this as wonderful news that will stir us to worship. He chose us. He predestined us before time began. Therefore, it's not about me. Do you know what? So I can go into Monday morning utterly confident in God. I'm holy and blameless. You think that sounds arrogant? No. God said it. He willed it. He sustains it. It's not about me. I'm holy and blameless. I'm adopted into his family. That's the first reason why the Father chose us before time even began. The second is this, that we find ourselves now in Christ. So let me read these words to you and just listen out for this in him language. 24 times plus it comes in this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. This is where we get all these blessings with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, where? In him. In Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. 
In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him, in him, in him. It is because we now find ourselves in Jesus that we have all of these blessings. Again, is it because of us or is it because of God? It's in Christ that we find these things. So let me ask you if you would find yourselves in Christ today. It's a very, it's a very simple transfer of position. I were once not in Christ. And I would like these blessings. Therefore, I would like to step spiritually into this new identity of being in Christ. And as you step into this new identity, you find yourself holy and blameless. Why? Because Jesus is holy and blameless. You find yourselves part of the family of God. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. And you find yourselves redeemed and forgiven. Why? Because Jesus Christ was crucified and was raised on the third day for our redemption and for our forgiveness. We are in Christ. And the third thing is this, that we find ourselves sealed by the Holy Spirit. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So we find this in verse 11. In him, in Jesus again, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Isn't this amazing? There, are in, there is an inheritance that we are going to walk into as a church. And there is an inheritance that we are going to walk into individually. And we might say, well, we're not, we're not there yet. Like, we look around and there's great prayers for the future. How is that going to come about? We don't know all the ins and outs of how and when and where and what it's going to look like. But we have this, a seal that is on our heart of the Holy Spirit. That is a down payment that continually sings in our heart and says you will receive an infinite and glorious an inheritance in God. It is coming. Tori and I met in 2006 and uh, we met, we were on, on, on uh, a year with UCCF, if you know them, they serve students in universities right across the country and I was working in Leeds and she was working in York and believe it or not, I met her in a prayer meeting, which is like so super holy, I know now, we met in a prayer meeting and we got to know each other because we're part of the same North East team. And Tori grew up in York, and I was up, 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 up in the north as a missionary from London to, you know, to save the darkness of the north. That's for another story. Uh, Caleb's from Hull, so like... Um. Anyway, we were there, and I'd known Tori not very well for three months. I knew she was super attractive. I knew she had this, like, crazy exotic, exotic name, Toria. Like, where does that name even come from? It's like... And that's all I really knew about her. I knew that I liked being with her. I felt super comfortable with her. And we're in this prayer meeting in December in a living room in Newcastle, just sharing our prayer points. And I was at one end of the sofa. She was at the other end of the sofa. And it was her turn to share prayer points. And she was sharing her prayer points. And no lie, out of the blue, this like shot of lightning came. I'd never been in love. I'm like super naive, romantic kind of person. And this thing suddenly came into my mind. I'm falling in love with Toriel Whiting. And it shook me because I was not looking for this. I wasn't pursuing her at this point. Suddenly I was like, bam. I was woke, to use these today's terms, to the realities of Toria. 
Joseph's with me here. And I was like, <laughs> not on the Tory front, on the woke front. <laughs> Otherwise it's going to get super awkward. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness. So the nearest point, I went up to the toilet, I hid from him. I was like, oh, I am, I am gone for Tory. Like, I knew I'm in love with Tory Whiting. And at that point, I knew no idea what to do. And also, part of this program, you weren't allowed to go out with one another. It was, like, it was a slightly weird thing. Like, it's another story. So I had a year to wait. And I, like, I was so, like, I had no idea. Because I'm a kind of all-in guy. So I was like, how do I talk to her? Just like chit-chat. Because very quickly, I was like journaling. I want to marry Toria. I'd rolled out Operation Marriage. I knew my plan. So like, how do I talk to her? It was like chit-chat. So we had basically nine months of the most awkward relationship of like not really talking to each other, looking at our toes. I was like, oh my, this, if she does go out with me ever, this is going to be a miracle of God because I've like blown it so many times now. Anyway, two minutes past the time where we weren't allowed to go out with each other, I texted her two minutes past midnight on the 1st of July and asked her out. And amazingly, she said yes. So first step of operating marriage was like in play. The first thing was at least spend like a date with her. That's like what we've got to do. Anyway, it all unfolded perfectly. Everything was going well. And I knew she was the one for me. So I did the thing that I'd never done before. And I went out and bought an engagement ring. And you've got to imagine, I'd been a student at that point. I'd worked voluntarily for a year at that point. I was absolutely broke. So anything I had was from my paper round from when I was a teenager. And like, that's, that's not a lot. But I went around all the shops of Leeds looking for the perfect rim. I knew it was going to be simple and elegant. And so I found this perfect ring and the diamond in the middle. Just one diamond. I knew, I knew that was what she wanted. Just super simple. And I, I chose the ring. And last minute, I was like, no, the rock is not big enough. I have to get a bigger rock. She has to know my intention. The diamond has to be bigger. So I went back and I said... I'm sorry, can we bump this up to the next size up in the diamond size? I can't believe what it was now. Anyway, so basically I spent everything that I had on this one diamond because I knew it had to be big. She needed to know I was serious. You're going to be my wife. If it's not going to be me, you're going to be one by. It's going to be this diamond. You're going to be one by this diamond. Not that I had any more of the way that was coming from, but anyway, this one... And anyway, we took her up, I took her up to Oban on the coast of Scotland there and on a, the f- most freezing day with rain sheeting down with our anoraks on. It wasn't ideal, I have to be honest. She came down sick the next day. I took her for a walk and I had this poem, right? This is not planned. I had this poem that I'd written and I spent ages over it. Terrible poetry, but it communicated my heart. And, and it was raining so much that as I was reading it, all the poetry was like getting washed away. So I was reading faster and faster and faster because it was just washing away in the rain. And by the time I was done, the whole thing was gone. So it was a once in a lifetime reading. So we've still got the piece of paper. There's nothing on it because it's just this, like sodden piece of paper now, which I think is quite romantic, really. It's a one-off reading. I, got, I actually had to get down on two knees because I had the ring in this pocket here if the guys know this little pocket I got down I realised I couldn't get it out so I, so I ended up you know, on two knees so I was literally begging Toria to marry me and I presented to her this ring in the sheeting rain in the cold mountains of Oban and I asked her will you marry me and she said yes and I could not believe it I turned around and like shouted to the mountains out of happiness because she said yes and I got to put this ring on her with this massive rock on her finger 
as a demonstration of my rock solid intent to come through as an honorable man and marry her. We didn't know at that point how or when. I was hoping within about four hours time I would get to marry her. Her parents had other ideas about planning and stuff which sounded very boring to me, but we had to do it. I said, you're gonna be my wife. And she said, yes, I wanna be your husband. And for six months with all of the workings out, what's it gonna look like? How's it gonna be? Dresses and plannings and whens and dates and dinners and desserts and all these things. We didn't know what it was gonna look like. Every day she would look at this. In fact, she, had, she was the only person who went back to Goldsmiths and said, could I have a slightly smaller diamond? And the lady looked at her like, you're crazy. Like you want a smooch. She was the only person this lady had ever met because it was like too big. She said, I just need to fit my hand. It looks like crazy. Anyway, so she had this ring. She, this diamond was my intent and my down payment to say, we're going to be married. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know exactly all the details, but one day we will be husband and wife. And that is what God the Father and the Son has given us in the Holy Spirit. We don't know all of the inheritance of what it's going to look like and the when and the how and the faces and the programs and all that we're going to walk into as a church. But we do have this as a deposit of God's intention, the sealing of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Amen. That we know that God has riches for us because he has sealed this in our inner being. And we now know.